Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is a place with unnaturally blue skies and empty beaches surveyed by families in red jumpers and occasionally haunted by enormous good luck kittens as we investigate picture postcards and explore what it was that caused us to hold on to these little ephemeral rectangles. Each time, I welcome two guests and it's their postcards that act as small clues to direct us towards memories, mysteries and stories. I'm Tom Jackson, and I'm delighted to say that today my guests are historian and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman and theatre director, writer Jack McNamara. Jack and Alex, welcome to Podcast from the Past. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, Jack McNamara is currently uh, artistic director of the award-winning touring company New Perspectives, based in Nottingham. Um, as well as touring shows around rural communities, he has specialised in bringing theatre or theatre experiences to a variety of unlikely and innovative spaces, from WhatsApp platforms to cassette tape, um, and his latest projects involve delivering dramatic stories to letterboxes around the world via postcards. You get the connection. Uh, we're going to hear more about this postcard project. I've got a lot of questions. Um, but Jack, you join us today with a Bangkok postmark on you. Is that right? Yeah, uh, thinking about a place that's had a big impact on me, I guess. I had a strange episode in my life where my family all moved to Thailand uh, for three years. Uh, I was there from the age of nine to 12. And um, it had a huge, you know, it's such a kind of sensory explosion of a place, uh, particularly coming from Europe. So uh, it was just, you know... It was a, almost a trauma when I started there. <laughs> um, but then I kind of settled into the trauma. And then really, I think ever since I've been away from there, uh, I've kind of yearned for some of that noise and mess and craziness. Um, yeah. Is it somewhere you go back to? I've, I've not been back. So that's why it's even more strange and, and kind of dreamlike. I saw a film called Syndromes in a Century, uh, which I kind of saw by accident, which is set in, in Bangkok. And it just completely kind of took me back. It was amazing. It just captured exactly the spirit of the place that I remembered. Wow. Um, so that's the closest I've been back to it, really. Very good. But it's part of you. Now, it's as right. I've said, um, you're currently involved professionally sending postcards. And there's a, there's a job that not many people get to do. Um, we're going to talk about that in a bit. But when you're off duty, when you're not doing these projects, do you still send postcards? Yeah, I really like to, um, where possible. Um, uh, my handwriting is really, really bad. So it's sort of a sort <laughs> of That's a problem, shame. isn't it? It is a bit. It's getting worse. But, uh, yeah, I do. If you can find a good postcard, I always prefer that, uh, if possible, to send someone. Very good. Now, I don't want to tease the listeners too much longer. So just can you just unpack for us just in a couple of sentences at this stage? the mechanics, what it is that your postcard theatre project is? Well, it was back when uh, lockdown first began and a part of our work as a theatre company is rural touring, which is very intimate, very close, very tactile. You know, it's, it's, it's not glamorous at all. And the loss of that really made me think about how to replace it with something that had the same sense of, of intimacy. Uh, and, you know, I knew that the kind of art world was going online and, and but that a lot of our rural audiences wouldn't take to that. So quite early on, I had this feeling that 
we could reach people via this postcard medium in a way that would actually feel quite special and quite kind of handheld. So um, we, this is a total experiment, but I, I just, what we did, what I did was I wrote a series, a sort of six, a narrative in six parts across six postcards. And the idea was they arrive at your house, you know, weekly, so that you kind of piece together this story over six weeks. Um, it didn't quite work out like that because mail was totally and utterly erratic. Oh, of so people, course, things were pe- waiting forever, weren't they? And people were getting the last postcard first and the third. So my structure <laughs> was just completely a joke. But it really took off as an idea. So, so you know, we did a kind of free run uh, to a couple of hundred homes to begin with and people got really excited by it. And then it kind of went on and on. And then we ended up, we've now posted it to 26 countries around the world. Unbelievable. Um, and we, we we time it better now so that you do actually get them in order. So right. uh, that's been a, a big breakthrough for us. How do you get a response? Because theatre is immediate. That's kind of the whole point. How, do people have to send you back a postcard saying, yes, very good, enjoyed that? Or how, how does it work? Well, yeah, the last postcard in the series, we had a seventh one, which is a kind of feedback postcard. So uh, we do kind of invite them to, to send us whatever they thought using that same medium. Uh, so yeah, having started on that form, it felt right to, to end on that form. But yeah, and, and interestingly, it hasn't really, it's always stayed quite kind of analog. We haven't had that much feedback on sort of Twitter or, or email. It's all kind of like, you know, old fashioned handwriting feedback, which is kind of great in a way. So somehow you've got people into that mode. They're in that mode when, they, when they're thinking about it. Exactly, exactly. Very good. Well, well, we'll find out very specifically about some of these in a moment. Uh, now, you may know uh, Alex von Tanzelman from her writing in The Guardian or The Telegraph or elsewhere. You may have read her history books on the Suez Crisis, Indian independence, the Cold War in the Caribbean, or even seen the film Churchill, for which she wrote the screenplay. Um, her recent, most recent book, uh, which is out, I think, last week, at the time I'm saying these words, um, is Fallen Idols, which is a uh, gripping, funny, urgent, necessary uh, scamper through the stories of statues, memorial statues, the statues of great men that are designed to loom over us um, but occasionally don't last into eternity as perhaps they were intended um, and the story of how those, those statues toppled over from George III to Saddam to Colston and beyond. Um, now, Alex comes to us today with a BN1 postmark, I think I can see. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that's uh, Central Brighton, um, oh, which is where, where mostly where I grew up. Um, I moved there when I was a pretty small child. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I thought a lot about this because there's so many places that are affecting me. And as you said, I've written history books about all sorts of different parts of the world, and all of those places have really affected me and changed my views in fascinating ways. But and This is I researching think... personally on the ground somewhere different from... London. Absolutely, absolutely. And which, you know, those wonderful memories of those days that we could actually just sort of get on a plane and go around the world <laughs> um, and visit different places and meet new people. Um, but I think when you asked me this question, I just felt like I kind of wanted to bring it back to uh, to a place that really I kind of felt formed me. And I think it probably did. I think I was very lucky to grow up in um, a town like Brighton, which was you know, quite diverse and cosmopolitan and interesting and full of uh, different ideas and and quite creative. So I think that has probably really affected me. And full of postcards, I might add. Absolutely full of them. There's actually, I think it might still be there, there's a an old postcard shop there that I was completely obsessed with. Um, I am a, familiar with the shop, yes. Yeah, I bet you are, yes. <laughs> but I must say the postcards on the, on the sort of on the seafront, on the, on the carousels last time I was there, which would have been obviously before lockdown, were looking a little bit forlorn. It's like they were they were hangovers from two or three seasons ago and were curling up at the edges a bit. Oh, yes, they're probably all a bit uh, a bit frayed now, aren't we all? I mean, after <laughs> the last year and a half. Um, so, I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows what we'll see in the future? But I do think the Seaside Postcard is also, yeah, for me, very redolent of that history. I do quite love them because, yes, I love the sort of slightly garish colours um, and, you know, rather artificial-looking uh, views of Brighton Seafront, I find incredibly evocative, actually. And you're not scared of putting jokes in your history books, either? No, um, I think they're actually quite essential. I think people kind of have 
various assumptions about history that I find fascinating, including that everybody in history was very, very serious. and Because uh, <laughs> they're dead. You know, yeah, exactly. And couldn't, couldn't possibly have ever had a joke or enjoyed anything. And I think sometimes historical jokes don't translate particularly well. Um, you know, certain humorous references or whatever definitely go by the by. But I think it's really important that we understand that people are people and, you know, do silly things in the past just as much as they still do silly things today. So, Alex, when did you last send a postcard? I think it must have been quite a while ago. I mean, you know, obviously lockdown notwithstanding and all of that. Although I do, oh, I suppose actually that's probably true. I do sometimes send them just out of fun. So actually it was quite recent because when my book came out, um, I sent a few copies to some people that had helped me with it and included some postcards with it. And I had to just go through. So like, I realise that you probably are way ahead of me on this, but I do have a stack of beautiful postcards that I love in a drawer, just waiting Good. to find the right moment for people to receive them. And so uh, so I dug through and saw what I could find. And indeed, I did have a lovely, very old 1980s postcard from Trafalgar Square with Nelson with very a pigeon on his head. So, yes. So probably, <laughs> probably our most famous statue, in fact. Absolutely. So uh, so that one did go to Yeah, hell of a day when that one's pulled down. Well, that's a big one. That'd be hard to get down. I think uh, I think he's all right at the moment. I think he's yes, pretty safe. Yes. He was pretty unpopular even when he was alive, I think, actually. Well, they often were. Probably why they had to put him so high up, so you can't get to him. <laughs> well, maybe that's, that's part of the sort of correlation of the size of the statue. We'll go into that later. <laughs> now, before we uh, see and hear about the cars that Alex and Jack have brought along, I'll give you a quick one of mine. Um, this is, of course, a postcard from the past card, like I do on Twitter and in my book. It's an old card from which I've selected a part of the message. Um, now, because we're recording this remotely, we've all got sort of dope sheets with pictures on. So, um, and, and, and at home, you can see them on the website. But this is a picture. It looks like a dry stone wall in a, in a, in a landscape. It's actually Gordale's Scar in Yorkshire. Uh, a very sort of mossy green colour. And... Um, the, the frank on it, as this wavy line frank, um, has been put put on so heavily that there's a sort of embossed effect on the front of the car. It looks like, um, I don't know what it looks like, but it's a, a wavy line from one side to the other. It's sort of effectively cancelled on both sides. Isn't that the story of our time? Cancelled on both sides. Anyway, um, so this is from 1974, sent to Rochester in Kent. Um, it's not really a joke, it just it just sums up certain experiences we probably had with English holidays. So uh, Ray says, Dear all, arrived safely, conditions bearable, food okay, weather worse than Dorset, spent today in two jumpers, jacket, cagoule, scarf, trouser and over trousers, just about warm. You wouldn't believe the cold on the moors. So, I mean, that's... But it was worth going. It was worth doing it. I'll do another quick one. This is this is a very pretty card. This isn't on your dope sheet, folks. It will be at home. But it's it's a picture of um, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, uh, taken, I think, from the Champs-Élysées, from the roof of a building on the Champs-Élysées, by the looks of it. Um, one of the great memorials, Alex, that one, uh, obviously. The statue's Absolutely. on it. Absolutely. Um, Pretty heroic looking, actually. It still, still looks rather wonderful. And it's a 60s card, I think. It's got little cars dotted around it. Um, very evocative. And um, I suppose what I liked about the message on this one is it reminds me of the magic of visiting places and how that magic can disappear when you go back to do some work somewhere. We've, we've probably all of us experienced that, actually. Um, so this one is sent to St Saviour's in Jersey from someone called... Jed, Ted, Jed, and they say, My four days in Paris are now over. Thank heaven. Paris in the spring with your girl is very nice, but not with 40 school kids walking behind, in front and alongside you. <laughs> so the, the romance of Paris just wasn't quite there when you had to look after all the school kids. It reminded me the first time I went to, I went to Paris for some work. And it was so different from going to Paris for fun. I felt, and actually felt, I felt cheated. I thought, oh, oh, will Paris ever be the same again? You know, but, uh, you know, I got over it. <laughs> right then. Uh, 
For those of you at home, you can see all these cards, the correct cards, on the website, which is postcardfromthepast.co.uk, and you'll be able to see that we haven't been making this up. Now, Jack and Alex, you've both been kind enough to dig out cards for today's recording. Um, Let's start with you, Jack. Now, the first one you've got, this is actually part of your latest version of the postcard theatre project, I think. Tell Tell me what you've got. Well, yeah, so it's a bit of a cheat because it's been written by me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can't Life claim... would be simple if that's all you had to do, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So it is a cheat. But, but so basically, it, you know, as mentioned, uh, we've been doing these dramas in six parts. I say drama, but really the sense of drama is only in the po- postcard coming through your letterbox and how incredibly exciting that is. But ultimately, the narrative is written down on them. But um, for this latest one, uh, it's called Dare to Look Down, the series. And it's basically I decided to tell the story of Alton Towers over the last 150 years because it's kind of an amazing story. Um, So our first one, Love from Cleethorpes, was a love story told between two people. But I decided this time to kind of focus on a place. So for each card, you have a wholly different character. Um, But they, they are related to Alton Towers in some way. Is this a commission um, from Orton Towers, or no, no, and no, it's not. It's a, it's a commission from me to myself. Oh, it could and, be. Uh, it could be. Yeah, it is. I don't. I mean, it isn't. It isn't unflattering, uh, but it also doesn't. It doesn't. Um, you know, sell Alton Towers to date, as it were. Right, right. Uh, it focuses on, on some strange things that have happened in its history. Uh, and I picked this one. Of, this is the fourth in the set, and this is from 1958. Um, and I just found this a really funny moment in Alton Towers' history, uh, which is that they it, they tried to sort of reimagine themselves as a zoo. Um, right. and, and I think Bernard Miles uh, did a kind of campaign and did a kind of big advert, and everyone was very excited. And that's the, the front of the card is a picture of him with a pint. And this then is the t- actor. The actor, exactly. Yeah. And two, um, two chimps. Um, and we've made this up. It will do zoo a world of good. That was kind of us being cheesy. But, you know, it, we, we were trying to kind of evoke that kind of time. But... Um, what was funny was that they set up this zoo and then there was a cage malfunction and all the animals escaped You're joking. Uh, into the Stoke countryside, yeah. So, um, uh, wow. and, and, and apparently two anteaters were never found, which is, <laughs> makes, it, makes its way into the story later on. Well, I, can, um, I can see why you were drawn to this. Uh, yeah, I just think it's brilliant. I think throughout in all the cards, this is probably why it wasn't an Alton Towers commission. You know, we try and point out what's kind of bizarre and beautiful and ridiculous about such a place. Um, so in this one, um, uh, where it, as I said, 1958, so we just come out of the war. Well, not just come out of the war, but, you know, it, we were sort of a post-war kind of, you know, uh, try and be positive uh, and... Um, you know, uh, it was on on the brink of becoming the Alton Towers that we know today. And they had a really slow miniature train, which I tr- uh, managed to get into the story as well. Um, but so this is basically, this is a whole other flight of fancy. One of the people from that region at that time was Lemmy Motorhead, um, the uh, musician. And and so I've I've written this in the imagined voice of Lemmy Motorhead's grandmother, um, okay. who who's taken him to... Uh, tried to take him on his holiday to the zoo, um, but been deeply disappointed. So how, by... how old would he have been at this stage? So he'd have been 13. 13. Uh, so he's a bit old for zoos, and they kind of t- she kind of talks about that. Right. Um, but, you know, I dug into his life a bit, and, you know, he, he was from Stoke, but he moved to Wales with a new sort of family and had a hard time there. So this is kind of his nan kind of complaining a bit to his mum and saying, you know, I don't think... His name's Ian. I don't think Ian's particularly happy. Right. Um, Ian Kilminster, is that right? Is that his name? That's right, exactly. And it mentions here in the card, how his his mates are starting to call him Lemmy because he keeps asking them to lend him a quid. Um, so it's a kind of little bit of history, but but just a bit of you know an invention really, and in trying to imagine this slightly kind of tough grandmother kind of telling off Lemmy Motorhead's mum. Can, can you read it for us? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's the thirteenth of uh, August, nine fifty eight. All that fuss about the new zoo opening, get here closed. Cage malfunction, half the animals escaped into town. Chimps, flamingos, even a leopard. Caught them all now, but for two giant anteaters, brackets, enough to keep me up at night. Ian wasn't too bothered. 13, a bit old for zoos? Question mark. <laughs> Says he's still not enjoying being the only stoke boy in Wales, but has started playing guitar and getting a bit of attention, brackets, and I know what kind. Did you know that his new nickname in school is Lemmy because he keeps asking people to lend him a quid? We should come home, June. <laughs> says his new brother and sister still bully him and that Joe does nothing about it, Mum. P.S. Gave miniature train ago, terrifying, 15 MPH, nearly sick. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's the, that's the, um, 
that's the uh, not quite the penultimate one. That's the fourth one in the series of six. So it goes up until the kind of um, the future. I write one card from the future at the very end, where Alton Towers has been scraped away and replaced by something else. And when you receive this as part of this sort of broken, ongoing narrative, mm. there's no further material to sort of explain it. You have to sort of you have to dig into it a bit as the recipient, do you, and kind of engage with it and work out where it all fits together. That was kind of the idea, yeah, not to give too much, to kind of give strange clues, a little bit like the cards that you read out. You know, we end up having to do so much other work to picture yes, these yes. people. I just think that's the joy of it. And I think if you over-explain a card, you're kind of ruining the format a bit. No, I, I totally agree. I think the, the less... The, I'm, one thing that always intrigues me is how much you can say with how few words. I mean, generally, I find absolutely, that interesting. Absolutely. But yeah. certainly the postcard kind of often forces you into something close to a haiku. You know, it's, it's just that exactly. tiny snapshot moment. And hopefully well-chosen words. Yeah, and that's been a massive um, uh, challenge for me as the writer of these, to try and capture that. And, and write in a kind of a slightly blunter way that people tend to do on these cards. There's a sort of slight sense of rush sometimes. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you can't get too kind of flowery. There's a slight, it's almost telegram-like. You're trying to kind yes. of pack it into a very short sentence. Yeah, so you don't tend to have bits that join things together in a postcard. That's why you often <laughs> exactly. get these funny non sequiturs because yeah, yeah. you make it almost bullet points. You no. know, point one, weather this, point two, hotel this, <laughs> point three, going to do this tomorrow. There isn't sort of, on the other hand, or meanwhile, or none of those yeah, exactly. sort of conjunction <laughs> bits. There's no, uh, what I would call upholstery. It's just the bare bones. Yeah, exactly. So when is this due to go out? When is, it, is, is there a plan for this to actually happen now? Yeah, so these are these are on sale. Our, our website's newperspectives.co.uk. It's called Dare to Look Down. They're, they're posted in later on in July, so I think there's still a few slots left. Um, and yeah, you, you book them. They're relatively cheap, and then they arrive at your house over a number of weeks in order, hopefully. Yes, I was looking the other day about some old cards from the Golden Age, sort of 1900 to 1914, and there was a, quite a fashion for cards with initials. Big, the, the whole card was an initial letter. Mm. Um, and they're very sweet. And if you know someone called, uh, you know, Terence, you can send them a tea or something. But also, apparently, used to get people would buy enough to send a message. So they might send, they buy, <laughs> might buy I love you, I L O V E Y O, and they would send them one a week. Brilliant. So you have the message on the back of the card, which is obviously, you know, uh, your mother can read. But no one really gets to read the whole message of the bigger letters until you've received them all. So it's sort of hidden in plain sight in a way. And I thought that was rather lovely. Lovely. Brilliant. So, you might figure so it out, though, wouldn't you, after you sort of got as far as I-L-O-V-E. Why are you like, you know where yeah. this is going. <laughs> yeah. Who is this illa value? Who is it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know what your game is. But I think, I think the idea of sending things one after the other, it's, um, it's really sweet. I think it's... Um, it, it, it used to happen a lot in the old days that you would have this sort of sense of building up a picture uh, across numerous cards. And I think we've sort of lost that now. I think cards are sent very much as one-offs and, in fact, not even regularly anymore. Um, you know, as you said, Alex, we'd send them when you when you got the book out, when you particularly needed to do a thank you or something. Mm, yeah. Very good. Well, I think it's a fantastic idea. And it, it, Will there be a third? Um, I'm, I, I'm hoping to do one for children as well. Um, that would be summer. great. I think so. Yeah, I think it's just. I just think people love receiving things. You know, I think yeah. the more digital we get, the more fun it is to get something through the post that you can kind of hold and, and crumple up. So um, I'm hoping to do one for children. Um, you know, uh, towards the end of the year. But yeah, I think it's a form that that has so far. It's relatively inexpensive, and it's it's also just great fun. So I think there's mileage in it, definitely. Excellent. Oh well, thank you for for letting us into the world of your sort of postcard theatre. It's it's uh, very interesting, very interesting. So, Alex, what's the first card you've got on your doormat? Well, this is an old one, Tom. This is uh, one that my nan and granddad sent me, and I can't quite make out from the frank the full date. I think it's the twentieth of August, nineteen eighty six. Possibly, it might be eighty eight. Um, and this is a postcard of. Uh, to sort of a drawing of two young people in Seville in Spain. Um, oh, and yes. the young lady has a dress that has been embroidered with real thread. Very exciting. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, 
really a, a such a sentimental, dreadful, cartoony picture. <laughs> isn't it? I know. Um, and but it's very not, evocative, isn't it? Evocative. It's very evocative of the time. I mean, that's sort of why I picked it. I've got a few that I've kept from my my nan. Always used to send me. Like, definitely, my nan has written this card. My granddad did not bother. Um, bless him. He he was absolutely lovely, but yeah, not a postcard writer. But uh, she was an absolutely you know sort of rigid postcard writer. We would always get cards from wherever they went on holiday, and uh, and you can sort of I mean. The message on the back is absolutely classic, um, which is, Dear Alex, thought you and Eugenie, that's my sister, would like these cards. I think my sister got one very similar. Sensible. Um, the plane was four hours late, so they gave us dinner at the airport. <laughs> it's very hot here, underlined. Lots of love, Nan and Grandad. So that's, that's a classic, a classic message, basically moaning about the flight. Um, and it's and in nice capital letters so the child can read it. She always used to write in very some neat capital letters, Um Although, you see, one of the reasons that this postcard actually is really quite sentimental to me is this is one of the earlier ones I've got. Later in life, unfortunately, she did develop Parkinson's disease. And oh. if you look at the later postcards, still these block capitals, but the handwriting is much shakier. And I always sort of feel quite, you know, sort of poignancy looking back yes. at those. She absolutely still insisted on writing them. Um, but this one, it's still, you know, very, very clear, very strong. Um, it also says you can tell what she was like because it says in several languages, the regulations state that this card must be sent in a sealed envelope, presumably because the thread would catch on yes. sending machines. She's totally ignored that. It's uh, definitely gone through the post, being franked just as it is. Yes, so, and, and actually you're lucky because sometimes those regulations mean it wouldn't be allowed. Yeah, it could have been just have got, not sent. So you... could have just been binned or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, she, she so was yes, living so on the edge. She was. She was. She <laughs> would do things her own way for sure. I can tell you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's such a funny image because I actually do remember sort of guessing it, and actually I did like. She was right that I did like the dress very much, but I did not hugely like the picture of this young couple who are indeed drawn in this really quite creepy, childlike sense. Yes, it's way. children as adults. There's a bit of a theme of those in these um, holiday cards, isn't there? Rather sentimental. Yeah pictures they're always a little bit unsettling they're pretty grim actually and now I sort of look back on it I mean they're obviously supposed to be I think a, a sort of a male and female character but actually to me I like it more now I thought they look a bit like a lesbian couple because the boy has been drawn <laughs> so prettily so yes actually, very feminine, maybe, isn't it? yeah maybe they're quite cool after all maybe I maybe I'm into this maybe it's quite progressive <laughs> um I doubt my nan would entirely have realized that yeah, you- <laughs> There's a word that's very overused, which is kitsch. And however, yeah. I think this is the right place to apply that word. This is this is definitely uh, full kitsch. And I think, you know, also very much from that era of yeah. Spanish holidays was still quite a cool thing to have. You know, it wasn't sort of later era when Brits would just pop over on, you know, 30 quid Ryanair flights, um, as many of us used to do before the pandemic, uh, sure. and just sort of you know, not think about it. It was still quite an undertaking to go on a holiday to Spain. Um, very glamorous at that time to do such a thing. So. I, I love these cards where something has been added to them. Uh, and the, I don't know, this must be done... Is it, do you think it's machine um, sewn on there? It must be. I mean, it must be, mustn't it? I mean, surely it wouldn't be worth it to get somebody to sew it because it's quite you know there's a lot of stitching in it um it's not particularly well done i mean i'm looking at it close up now and it's sort of you know <laughs> it's a little bit scattershot in terms of where it goes but but the effect is the color's still really good on the thread it is actually it's really lasted well i've sort of kept it in i you know i've got a couple of old little postcard albums just for just for the family ones like Excellent. this so so it's been it's been well looked after um after the postal service impressively did deliver it despite the uh complete breaking of regulations (laughs) because the the next stage of these are the ones where they have the sort of polyester flouncy dress coming out oh yeah stuck on yes definitely they definitely couldn't go through the post i don't think no no i think that would actually definitely get stuck in some kind of machine um so she wouldn't have got away with that maybe she sent one of those a couple of years later and it never arrived (laughs) it's also possible you'll you'll never know handwriting or not you'd never know (laughs) exactly exactly so you've got a bit of a collection of these from that time yeah i've got a few i mean this one as i say there were a few others that i looked at i don't have a huge number left but yeah and i think also because you know my my nan and granddad were of that generation they um they grew up in birmingham they always lived in birmingham um, and they'd both grown up really quite poor, but during their lives, I mean, my grandfather ran a, a 
pharmacist shop and you know they made a bit more money and they had a and and of course this was also the era where that sort of international travel was opening up so I think they did go on really some quite uh cool exotic holidays um that's sort of how they liked to spend their time and so you know I have got a few from sort of all over the world and it's it's kind of amazing to see now I'm like you know I wouldn't mind going some of these places myself I have to say (laughs) but very much that sort of that era of the world sort of opening up to people who could who could afford it a little bit um and i suppose even 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 if the messages are not formulaic's the wrong word but fairly standardized the, the the written message you're you're catching someone having a really nice time um, yeah. and it's an exuberant silly card um and she's picked it specially because you're going to like it the message is kind of positive and and cheerful despite the the plane uh, I think I think these things kind of vibrate with a bit of warmth. I think so too. And actually, looking back now, I think that's true because you know, with certainly with my nan and granddad, my granddad was the kind of person who was so good with children, and he had lots of grandchildren, and just absolutely adored playing with us, and was you know really kind of warm and open and into that. And I think my nan, you know, would was much kind of better with a bit older children or adults. And so she was much less kind of rolling around playing with us. But she did always write these cards. And I think now I kind of feel really quite warm about that. I think she was, you know, very much trying to form that connection, trying to, uh, you know, kind of keep her relationship going with all her grandchildren. And, you know, I think that's really quite lovely. Um, I think she was, this is her way of doing it. Yeah, no, it's the most it's a it's a pretty fundamental thing, isn't it? And and then just by a freak of the fact that cardboard is resilient, you've still got <laughs> it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, goodness knows, I wonder how long she thought of this, you know, thought about this postcard for. Probably not very long. I mean at the time she Exactly, sitting her... having a lemonade at the bar or something. Yes, exactly. Um basically, you know, complaining about it being too hot. <laughs> Which well, is very British you know on holiday. <laughs> Have you been to southern Spain? It's very hot. I mean, I, yeah, I do hear that. Actually, I would love to go to Seville. I haven't been to Seville, but oh, it's um, a lovely, it's a it's lovely wonderful. city. Oh, yeah, well. so they, maybe this is what I can do. Make one an day. excuse, come on. Yeah, one day I can trace her holiday journeys. Um, although I do have another <laughs> one that I nearly considered uh, doing instead, which came from French Polynesia, and I think that oh, that yeah. might be a bit beyond my budget. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, save up for that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. Now, I, I wanted to talk to you about statues in a, a just a very, very sort of narrow focus. I tend to think about things in narrow focuses. There's a thing you mention in your book that this sort of statue mania in Europe kicked off around 1870. I think that's right. I think I'm right in saying that. Around then, yeah. Yeah, and that's when statues suddenly, from being dozens in, in, in for example, London and Paris, there were hundreds yes. um, of great men from the preceding few hundred years really um that intrigued me because that is exactly when postcards started 1870 in this country Hmm. um now i'm not saying one (laughs) one is connected to the other but it does feel like it there may somewhere be some connection between this sort of um i don't know the industrialization of, of of communication through the post and whatever was going on in in, in governments and and institutions' minds to wanting to put up statues. I don't know. I don't know. Can can you find a thread? That's a really interesting point, actually. I think They are quite different things. They are, yeah. But on the other hand, I think there are a couple of things that probably did sort of link those. I mean, partly, I suppose, there is something about the sort of representation of the human image, which, of course, you begin to find in postcards as well yeah, um, right, but so also photography in, generally as well yeah yeah photography generally but also in the messages on postcards that those yeah. are kind of human and I mean I think the sort of Victorian statue mania I mean I say Victorian but actually you can absolutely see it in all uh, European cities and also in North America and also then of course in the various colonies at that stage that were were under the rule of those places that suddenly there was this kind of boom in putting statues up and that was very very much linked to the sort of Victorian great man of history theory so that you know history was Thomas Carlyle's theory that history was just about the biography of great men so it was about and you know very much men really I mean very few women Queen Victoria of course being a bit of an exception but usually they were men um and I think probably you know there is something something in marking making a mark perhaps 
that yes, is a bit yes. similar with postcards, making a mark on a place or on history, taking a bit of ownership, that perhaps there is something in there that's a little bit similar. And of I course, there are cities of... were being I wonder if cities were being reinvented to some extent as well. There were big projects yeah. to, to have rebuilding. So I know a lot of early postcards of Paris were looking at bits of Paris that were disappearing because Paris Absolutely. was being redeveloped. Um, so they were catching something that had just gone. But equally, if you're doing lots of cityscapes on your postcards, you'll take pictures of the new statues as well. So there's a sort of sense that there are, there's change going on and, and we're capturing that change. Absolutely. I think there's a documenting of what's going on there a bit, um, which probably does kind of, you know, form a similar thing. And I suppose it's also, it is an era where, you know, more and more people are able to participate in these kind of things um you know certainly postcards obviously are sort of very democratizing in some way and yeah, statues yeah. statues are not very democratic actually <laughs> in a way they're a sort of reaction against that a bit and sometimes quite specifically actually in the late 19th century they were a reaction against uh socialist ideas right um, sort of bulwark against yeah the people yeah absolutely like don't you get any ideas here's your heroes you know yes. look they're rich people Yes, you're not one of them, you (laughs) realise. Exactly. Um, When I was reading your book, I I had this image come to me that I don't think really works, but it it just got in my mind. The idea that these, a lot of the statues referred to are like staples, like, you know, staples from a staple gun, Mm -hmm. that they're sort of staples holding together completely opposing um, histories and interests. So, you know, you have the, the ruling class and you have the people, but they're kind of, you try and stamp this staple to hold these tectonic plates together. And it, it works for a while, but the tectonic plates keep shifting. Yes, that's basically true. I mean, and you can't really much as, I mean, if you look at the history of, you know, propaganda generally in all its various forms, and that's what statues really are usually as propaganda there. You know, I mean, it depends on the statue a bit, but they mostly are kind of a statement in favour of a particular virtue or cause. Um, I mean, what you can see from the whole history of it is that you can, you know, you can sustain these stories for a bit, but actually somebody pretty much always ends up challenging them one way or another. Yes, yes. I was, I mean, funny enough, it's interesting how you talk about the, the, the excuses people say, or the reasons people say, why you must never move a statue, and have the same, literally the same words emerge again and again um, over time. You know, you're erasing history; you can't rewrite history um, of mm. their time. All these things, and they come up again and again in completely different contexts, which is intriguing. And I, I, I noticed one just a couple of weeks ago when there was the statue put up of uh, Princess Diana, and I'm sure you were reading the papers around that as well. If it's of interest to you. And the the, the, the the princes, I don't know if it was Harry or William, they specifically said, we want her image now to be preserved forever. Um, and I thought it's interesting because, of course, that is what statues tell you they are about. But nothing lasts forever. It's as simple no. as that. And I mean, that was literally word, almost pretty much word for word, exactly what was said about Lenin. Um, right. Was right. that his image had to be preserved forever. And, you know. Um, we can see how that goes. I mean, it's, you know, not always successful. I mean, statues are an attempt, very much unlike postcards in this respect, to sort of, I mean, very literally to set the past in stone, to create a permanence and a permanent image. And actually what we can see looking at the history of it is that that they are very not permanent. Um, no. That that permanence quite, is challenged. They're often quite hard to get rid of. But, the, but Some if, of them are. If very the will is there. <laughs> yeah, people manage it. Well, that's I, was, it. I was amused to hear about the number of statues which actually just collapsed under their own weight because they were rather badly planned. Yes, that has happened to a few, especially the early ones. They sort of, you know, sort of Georgian period, they made them out of lead and it turned out that just sort of eventually was just too soft. It kind of melted, basically. <laughs> the horse's legs just buckling. Or something. Yeah, they did. They just sort of flopped um which which you know is its own wonderful image really isn't it yes, my goodness yes. um but yeah i mean stone and uh bronze are harder to get rid of people do though i mean even in the book i'd sort of pointed out that queen victoria is particularly hard to pull over because you know if you sort of see she she's you know often sort of depicted sitting in a throne with big skirts and so she's kind yeah. of a pyramid now pyramids are the hardest shape to knock over and then of course minutes later in canada they were pulling over statues of queen victoria so actually people do yes. if they want to they absolutely yes those do. skirts she wasn't she wasn't silly no they, no they she's very solid ballast yeah <laughs> 
you usually need a crane to get rid of Queen Victoria, but uh, okay. but you that's know your, that's your next book. Manage. How to get rid of statues? <laughs> no, no, no. Statues don't have to be evil. No, no, exactly. It's up to people. It's up to communities to make these decisions. In, in my yes. opinion. Um, yeah. No. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking us to uh, Seville, um, and and embroidering the story behind it. No. That was very good. <laughs> Um, I'll do you another quick one of mine, which is, um, and we haven't actually gone away from statues. This is a picture of the Market Square in Shrewsbury, um, as I call it. And I think if you live there, you call it Shrewsbury. Um, it's from 1967, oh, 1968. Actually, it's an old card. And, um, well, I won't give you the message yet. We can just have a quick look at the front of it. Because, of course, anyone who's visited Shrewsbury knows that there's a very prominent statue of um Robert Clive Clive of India um in the square and that's been contested recently itself i think are you yes. aware of this one alex absolutely sure yeah sure this um well clive is very controversial there's one of him yeah. in london and this one in uh, in shrewsbury um and there was there were a couple of petitions against this there was also a petition in favor of the clive statue last year and i think the council voted to keep it but to contextualize it they want to put up a plaque somewhere near it or a sort of info yes. board that I think it's been funded it. yeah it has been funded um i mean what i will say is that these very rarely work i mean we'll see good luck to them but um there are incidents i mean you know in the book there's uh, a couple of years ago a town in virginia tried to put up all the kind of world war ii allied leaders uh, so you know churchill uh, truman roosevelt and of course stalin and uh, they put oh, the yes. statue up and they <laughs> they they had a little plaque next to it saying stalin killed lots of people and was bad but nobody reads the plaque so everyone just got very upset and they had to take it down after three months so yes. so i don't know whether this plaque will really um satisfy people so we'll we'll it's wait difficult, isn't it? because the plaque to some extent it would work if it just adds detail and nuance but if it effectively says this person, frankly, is not worthy of a statue, you've yes. kind of built yourself a contradiction. It doesn't really work. Then what are you um, doing? And actually, well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, then still the statue is a form of glorification. So of ultimately, it is. If, if, you know, putting a footnote at the bottom of it doesn't necessarily people don't read the footnotes. So, yes. Um, so I'm not <laughs> sure that will keep anyone very happy, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what they do. Yes. And, and you know, it's a very handsome figure in the middle of a beautiful square. You know, aesthetically, I rather like it, but I have great misgivings about the politics of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, there's definitely a camp. There's actually a campaign called Remove Clive now run by some young people. And I think quite a lot of historians are quite sympathetic to that one because he's, <laughs> he's pretty questionable. Um, definitely, definitely. So so we'll see how that goes. Well, to, to, to sort of look beyond him, which perhaps is appropriate, um, just looking at his picture, you've got this um, shop on the right, Grocot. Can you see that? Mm. Well, I look, that's long gone. I think that went... Uh, it look, in fact, I think it's long gone in 1968 because, look, it's empty. Mm. And in the windows, and I got my magnifying glass out, there are army recruiting posters. So huh. I think it's been taken over as a temporary army recruitment area. And this gets better because if you then look behind the yellow car, and this is quite hard to see on your on, on your screen, it may, it may not be hard. There's some kind of um, heavy artillery. Can you see it in just in green? You maybe can't see it. Really. I looked on the microphone. Oh glass. yeah, no, you can. So they must have had a temporary sort of recruitment thing going on, and maybe that was the attraction that all the kids and young people would go and have a look at, and then into the old Grocots to see if you want to sign up to join the army. <laughs> but uh, now they well maybe, I don't know what they have during lockdown but before they they, they had little um, market stalls selling honey and uh, you know lavender bags and things so uh, it's uh, slightly different anyway I will do the message quickly um, which uh, is sent to someone in Western Supermare in Somerset um, it says having a divine time there you go that's, that's what you want having a divine time Went And there's no anteaters at all uh, in this one, Joe. <laughs> Having a divine time. Went on a six-mile hike yesterday. Blisters, aching bones, etc., etc. Thought the chap on the front looked like Grandma Norman. Love, Angela. So, that they didn't have to take the statue down. That was the ultimate put-down. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Grandma Norman. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to Podcast from the Past, the postcard podcast. And my guests today are Alex von Tanzelman and Jack McNamara. Uh, a surprise. We've received a postcard. Now... Uh, postcard is from Mrs. Coleman of Guildford in Surrey. And Mrs. Coleman says, one, 90%, two, the coniferous forest, three, well-behaved dogs, and four, two pounds. Well, I'm sorry, Mrs. Coleman, they're the wrong answers. Good luck next time. On with the postcard stories. Now, Jack, what's the second card that you've got for us? Um, well, this is a um, picture of Alfred Hitchcock uh, with a really long cigar sticking out of his mouth and a bird perched on the end of it, and he's kind of staring at the camera in his <laughs> typical kind of uh, sardonic way. Um, I, I can't tell if that's a real bird. I mean, I think it must be some sort of odd model. Um, and, uh, yeah, this this was sent to me. This was just a bit of a surprise postcard, which is why I chose to include it, and, and sort of meaningful to be, I guess. Which so is we're away from your fake messages now into the real This is thing. not fake. This is real. <laughs> this is real. Yeah, this was actually sent to me. Um, so when I kind of began my time directing shows in 2006 or so, um, you know, it was quite typical, I guess. Every door was closed. It was all about people saying no. And the only person who said yes to me uh, was a quite famous American novelist called Don DeLillo, Wow. who had uh, written a play, which I wanted to do, and all of the kind of industry people around were like, no chance, no chance, you're a nobody. Uh, but he uh, uh, undercut them and gave me the the UK premiere rights to this play. Wow. Um, which is really kind of him. Uh, and uh, and so I put that on and it went well. And then it, it, uh, and it led to me doing another piece of work of his. And I've now done three uh, pieces of Don Lillo's work for the Ooh. first time in the UK. And always with his very kind kind of blessing. But I guess and what's interesting is that we would correspond. I mean, our first correspondence was by phone. But other than that, we would correspond by letter. And he always would write in a, with a typewriter. Uh, uh-huh. I think all his novels are typewritten. And I would get these, you know, this letter through the post. I'd open it and it would be a quite formal typewritten letter from him uh, answering a question or telling me about a scene or saying, yes, I could do this or that. And we would just kind of write back and forth. My letters were kind of boring, you know, printed computer paper letters. <laughs> uh, but I get these lovely typewritten things. And then, so we'd done a few things together, and then I, you know, I moved to Nottingham and ran the company I'm running now. And I did a show about Alfred Hitchcock and took it uh-huh. to New York, and New York is where Jalilo is based. So I just thought I'd send him a little letter, and I'd just say, "Look, 
I'm in New York, show about Hitchcock. I knew he loved Hitchcock because he'd written a book called Point Omega, which talked about Hitchcock. Right. I said, if you, if you uh, and your wife would like to come, but no pressure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and anyway, I got in response this. And so it was a postcard, not a letter for the first time, which I was just uh-huh. very pleased about because it was it kind of marked a tiny change in our <laughs> correspondence. Intimate. Yeah, exactly. So, so I got this Hitchcock postcard from him. Uh, and in it, he tells two jokes. Oh. Uh, which was uh, even more of a surprise, um, or, or sort of jokes. Um, do you want me to read it to you? I, I would love uh, to. So it just says a picture of Hitchcock, like I said, and it says on the back, and I like the fact that it, it a postcard begins answering a question, uh, but it just says, Jack, thanks for letting me know. Sure, two tickets, May 2nd. Hope to see you. Uh, and then he writes in brackets, has the armed unit of the T.S. Eliot Protection Society given permission? Uh, that's a joke, I think. And, and that's because um, the play was called so. the, the play was called The Love Song of Alfred J. Hitchcock, uh, which is a, a, uh, okay. a, a version of the Eliot poem, you know, Proof Rock. Um, so I guess he must have some knowledge that the, that the, the people who guard Eliot's work are very fierce. So I there was a kind are, of yeah. a little dig there. Um, and so he does that joke at T.S. Eliot Protection Society and he says, best Don DeLillo. And then he does another joke, which is, uh, in, in, um, brackets again, he says, not to mention the Hitchcock psycho ward. Um, and I, I, I mean, again, I don't fully understand it, but I was just so grateful to be joked at at this point yeah. uh so i guess i guess you know the well, combination didn't have to, did he? he didn't have to he didn't have to no and he came along with his wife and that was great um but yeah i suppose it's meaningful to me because it was just a big surprise to get it and i think also just him as a figure because he's a writer i've always loved the fact that he was really the first person to kind of uh give me the green light on something uh, i guess I'll, I'll kind of always remember so yeah and and you got to meet him there yeah, we'd met a couple of times when I was working on his shows, and then that oh, okay. was the first time we met in a kind of uh, slightly more, um, you know, informal way. He came with his wife and watched the show. Um, we were slaughtered in New York for that show. Oh. Uh, yeah, we, we received a review, which I absolutely love, uh, in the New York Post, uh, which described the show as lifeless British dirge. Um, but, right. uh, you know, other than that, people really liked it, and it went well. <laughs> but it was a big mix. Well, they are famous for the there. cruelty of their reviews, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were grateful to receive that, and it's, it's a good set of words. Because DeLillo is more known for these enormously fat novels, isn't he? Well, he was, uh, I think, in the kind of 70s and 80s, yes, but recently they've become kind of slimmer and slimmer. Have they? Uh, so He's wearing out less years. of those typewriters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think in the last 10 years they've been sort of almost novella-sized. Okay. Um, well, maybe I should I should re- rejoin the fan club because yeah. uh, sometimes they can be quite uh, intimidating. Those books. Yeah, I think his last one uh, actually is is set out in a typewriter font. I think it's all uh, you know straight from a typewriter, uh, oh, yeah. and it's it's literally tiny. It's like a kind of prose poem. So yeah, I mean they're great. They're great pieces of work. Looking at looking at the the, the picture on this, the Hitchcock picture, it reminds me that. Obviously, we all know Hitchcock's films, and there was a sort of aesthetic to those films, and a look to those films, and he created a, uh, you know, innovations in the visual language for film. But Hitchcock, as a personality, there was kind of a visual style created around him, wasn't there? With these strange, sl- always slightly sinister images for television or for promotional shots, or and this is this is so typical. Having this bird obviously refers back to the birds, but on on the uh, cigar. Something there was a whole Hitchcock non-film aesthetic. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I think that he was, um, and this is partly what that play that we did talked about is that he was kind of a bit the opposite to how we are today. He was kind of constantly trying to send up the seriousness of of, of what he was talking about. Yes. So you yes. know, There's arguably, humor, wasn't there? yeah, because so you know, if if you dig into a film like Psycho, you know, it's it seems to just be really about lots of very complicated sort of psychosexual issues <laughs> and hang-ups. <laughs> and, uh, and when people would ask him, what is this film about? He'd say, oh, it's just a joke. You know, it's just a kind of, it's just, yes. a, you know, it's just a, it's a piece of Pulp Fiction. Um, so it's like he was continually trying to hide how personal these films were to him and what they kind of said about him, I think. So I think this picture is, is that again, you know, he was getting a lot of controversy around this film, The Birds. So I think sticking a bird on a cigar like that and kind of smirking at the camera, you know, seems to be part of his campaign to kind of, um, I don't know, almost lighten his image. Yes. 
probably the most famous director as a director, I don't know, ever? Maybe in, or until Tarantino, perhaps? Sort of someone who their image became as important as their films. I don't know. Mm. What, do you, what yeah. do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a striking image. But yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, he... Hitchcock, of course, put himself in his own films quite deliberately. Yes, um, you know, he helped build that image, and you can definitely see him here gleefully playing up to it. Um, you know, certainly making himself a bit of a star. You won't see many film directors making themselves quite such a recognisable figure. No. Um, but of course, in recent years, there's been much more controversy over over Hitchcock and his personal life around the kind of Me Too stories dating yes. well back to his time. Perhaps that are there, also are there specific stories like that? I don't want to go into it detailed, but you know, I I know he treated actors like cattle famously, but was yeah, it was it rather pretty more much worse the than women that? one and worse uh, not not quite oh, okay. how you would treat cattle uh, uh, certainly okay. tippy hedron yeah. on the set right. of the birds had plenty right. to say so uh, oh, so you dear. can uh, yeah you can look into that but let's yes. enjoy the films <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> one of those it's films great those. yeah yes. <laughs> Is, was he from walthamstow I think that might be right. Somewhere, Somewhere like, that. like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've just forgotten. Uh, East, yeah, East, yeah, Far East London. I've forgotten now exactly where, he's, where he was. I know he made um, films in Islington, I think, at first when he started out on the canal. Yeah, and he kind of, you know, he was sort of famous here, but I think going to America is when he kind of became the, the Hitchcock that we all know, you know, this sort of grinning figure. Um, yes. I think that all took off for him in America. Well, then there's a sort of sense that, when you did your show in New York, it was a bit of that transatlantic cultural exchange. It makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I think they were the press were quite excited uh, at the idea uh, of retelling that story. You know, they loved the idea in America that that they had kind of brought him uh, to full kind of fruition, um, and then they slaughtered the show critically. So you know, it's a kind of that's the <laughs> oh dear. But you've got up again. You're not. You're not. This is this no, is now, no, no. It's now a fond memory. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we. It's always fun to get a big range of responses to what you do. You know, it's part of the fun. If you get over the, the short-term pain of it, uh, I think it's it's great, and you, and you learn things as well. And then and they're noticing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We learned that we were lifeless British dirge out there. It was, a, you know, it was a <laughs> positive thing. <laughs> I I can only admire your spirit. <laughs> now I think we've got uh, one more card to come from Alex. What what what's your final card for us, Alex? So my final card, this is one that's much more recent in my life, although the image actually is also from the 1980s. It's a photograph of a woman in a cinema um, on her own wearing what looks to be a rather luxurious fur coat. Um, some of the more details about this, it's actually by a Lebanese photographer called Fouad Al-Khoury, who is very famous mostly for uh, extraordinary photographs of uh, the war in Lebanon and so on. Um, oh, okay. But this photo was taken in Cairo in 1987, and it's actually of the Egyptian film star Sherry Han, who was a very big star of the 80s and 90s. Um, I saw this actually, so, you know, my last probably kind of uh, last big trip before the pandemic um, was a wonderful holiday to Beirut with a couple of friends of mine. Um, we'd all always wanted to go and went and we just had the most wonderful time. And I, I saw this image in um, in a kind of art shop, museum type place when we were there. And I just, you know, sometimes you see an image and you just kind of come to a full stop in front mm. of it. It just absolutely um, cut through me in the most extraordinary way. And I think, you know, I was trying to sort of figure out yeah. why. Well, I, I, I entirely agree with you, but tell me why you think yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, sometimes something just gets you. And this did, I think, partly it's, you know, I mean, obviously as a kind of massive lifelong film fan myself, there is something about the kind of woman on her own in the cinema kind of looking like... It's you a bit. It's me a bit, but it's also kind of an audience and it's just that sort of looking so kind of fixed on the screen and kind of wrapped in this coat and kind of... And there, and it's a very glamorous cinema as well. You can see it's got some lovely sort of panelling at the back um, and all these quite beautiful, well-kept chairs. Um, And I think something about it, just her expression and the the picture really just kind of got me as, as a fan. I thought, gosh, I really... I feel there's something about this picture just speaks of the love of cinema in a way that I find quite extraordinary. And it's a sort of reversal, I guess. She's the actress, but she's looking at the screen. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, something for us. I mean, you know, I'm sure for Jack as well, that, you know, anyone who is um, a maker of theatre or film or 
or books or anything is usually first and foremost a great lover of those things. So we do all occupy this position of looking at and being looked at and this kind of complicated relationship. And actually, I was just very... I, I think what Jack just said was so brilliant about um, about getting slated and bad reviews and all of that. I mean, my goodness, we have certainly all had those. <laughs> and it can be incredibly painful, but absolutely agree with this attitude that you sort of have to just, you know, treat this as part of the work, really. You have to kind of uh, pick yourself up and see what you can learn and carry on because the other option is, I don't know, falling back into a hole and never coming out again. Well, you can't do that, so... So we have to proceed. I think another thing that's nice about this picture is, is Egyptian film stars uh, live a very glamorous life and the trappings of Hollywood glamour and the way they're photographed normally are very, very glamorous and um, very much um, in, 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 the, in the glamour and the glitter. And this one is, is solitary and reflective. So it's, it's, it is a diff- it's like a, a scene from a film rather than a, scene of a, than a shot of a film star. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, of course, she is still there in her great big fur coat. Very necessary in Cairo, no doubt, at all times. Um, (laughs) Terribly chilly. (laughs) Famously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, you know, but that's, that's of course, a marker of glamour. And I mean, I know that obviously fur coats now, a lot of people uh, would really rather not. But certainly in the past, um, they were such a signifier of of glamour and success and as i say this photo is from back in 1987 so that's a lot of people were still wearing them there but you will still see if you go to i mean i was stunned when we were in beirut just to uh you know i guess it was kind of about march time and so it was still you know it wasn't boiling hot or anything but it was it was also not really that cold and certainly yeah. seeing on sunday morning um the Beiruti society ladies going to church all of them wearing massive fur coats when it was definitely too warm to do that brilliant well you've given us a little snapshot there literally of (laughs) of both really of of your going to Beirut to buy a picture of a cinema in Cairo or is it a cinema (laughs) in Beirut no the cinema is in Cairo I'm sure it is yes wonderful wonderful thank you very much well look thank you very much both of you for sharing these cards uh, with me and with our our listeners. Um, I've said it before, I never know where the cards will send us. Um, and I'm delighted that you both shared them with us and with our growing band of, of podcast listeners. Um, another quick reminder for everyone at home, images of all these cards, the correct ones, um, they're going to be on the blog at postcardfromthepast.co.uk. And before we let Alex and Jack off the line and back to their busy lives, I've got just one more card for us all to consider. Um, it's customary for us to end the show on one of these. I would normally pass this across to you to look at across the desk. You're going to have to look at your sheet. I don't know if you can see the last card in your in your document, Alex and Jack. Mm-hmm. So tell us what we've got there, Jack. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh no! Uh, is this the one with the with the um, with the church? The exactly right. Church? Exactly right. Um, that's about as much as I could say. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know where. where well, it's are... an aerial. It's an aerial shot, I guess, from another from another church spire or something, probably looking down on a on a, on a what looks to be a. Well, it's an Eastern European city. I, I can tell you what it is. It's either a picture of a town in Hungary called Sopron, um, about which I know very little, except apparently it's a good wine growing area, uh, which is nice, and. You can probably see there's a dot in the middle of the card, and it is in fact a postcard, which is also a record, uh, a record you'd play on a record player. Um, and so this one is from, uh, as I say, it's Sopron in Hungary. Um, there's something written on the back in Hungarian, and I think it's basically it's saying it's from it was bought in 1963. Um, possibly November 1963. Um, now, obviously, we're all in different bits of the world today, but uh, young Tom from Wardour Studios has taken the precaution of recording the music from this record. He has it in some kind of digital compression, and if we ask him very nicely, he might be able to play it for us, and we can hear what it sounds like, listening to a postcard. <laughs> Oh, that is very jolly. It's jollier than the the rooftops suggest, isn't it? It is, yes. 
You didn't see the band in the in the, in the market square. No, <laughs> they've been on the local wine. Yes, exactly, exactly. It, maybe it's the wine festival. I think it's a singer who, if I've got this right, it's a singer called Chirok Lajlo. But, um, that could be, even be the name of the song. I don't, so, I don't really know. Is it postcard sized? No, it's, it's slightly oversized. It's probably oversized. a little bit more than double size. Okay. Um, wow. And it's it's shiny, and in <laughs> in the laminate, as it were, are the grooves. Wow. Wow. Incredible. But, and can you, you know, post this with a with a stamp? I mean, can you post it? Um, I think in Hungarian it says, "Whatever you do, don't post it <laughs> without an envelope." No, without it. But but there's a room for t- there's a there's a mark for the stamp, and I have I have got some. I've got quite a lot of these. There are some that have been sent, and they kind of survive amazingly. Wow. So it's not even scratched. No, it sounds really good. There you go. Well, as the view of Sopron continues to rotate at exactly 45 revolutions per minute. That's it for this time on Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, Jack McNamara and Alex von Tunzelman. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me, at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book, Postcard from the Past, by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.